one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 915 for the week of Monday, December 4th, 2017. The penultimate episode of the year and of the season. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, let's kick the tires and light the engines. We got a big show here tonight. Not quite sure that's how it goes, but we'll go with it anyway. <laughs> and welcome as well, Cat Robinson. Hi, it's a pleasure to be back. Just a couple of papers away from officially being a candidate for my doctorate degree. So I'm pretty excited. Passed my comps and happy to be back in time for the last show of the year. Woohoo! All right. Can't wait to call you Dr. Cat soon enough. <laughs> yeah, um, really. I still have a whole dissertation to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> oh, folks, in case you can't tell, this is going to be a fun episode tonight, and you don't even know the half of it. Some of the stuff that's already been cut from this episode that you haven't heard. <laughs> Margaret Adderman is unfortunately unable to join us tonight, taking care of some personal matters, but we hope to have him back on for the end of the year. Oh, yes, sir. All right, so let's get things started here with our launch roundup. And, um, well... This launch roundup is actually kind of a lack of launch roundup, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. Uh, we're going to start off with SpaceX. Now, we were following the classified Zuma mission, which all we knew is it was called Zuma, and it was going to be launching on a Falcon 9 to low Earth orbit from Launch Complex 39A. That launch was originally supposed to happen earlier in November. We're talking all the way back to November 15th. Well, it was then delayed. And delayed again. And as of right now, that mission is currently delayed indefinitely. So at this point, no new launch date has been set. Some of the delays initially were because of range and because of other issues. But this one, they say, is because of a payload fairing issue that they had noticed while preparing another Falcon 9 rocket. They are taking the extra time to examine the payload fairing aboard this mission to make sure that everything is okay with it before they proceed with launch. Yeah, so this is kind of like a trickle-down thing. Uh, it's also impacted a couple of other launches that SpaceX has got uh, up and going. It will not impact uh, any of the NASA uh, cargo launches because, well, they don't use a fairing with those particular launches. But for the ones that do, yeah, this is going to be a significant impact to that. So they're going to go ahead and do the analysis, do the homework, figure out what's what's bothering the fairing and uh, and put in a fix. I mean, I'll, I, and, and fairing problems are nothing new. It's, it's just... Uh, 
they've done in other rockets before. I mean, Orbital ATK had a problem with uh, uh, with their Taurus uh, vehicle, uh, which also was a fairing originating problem. Uh, Taurus has been now uh, renamed uh, Minotaur C, and it performed flawlessly uh, during its last uh, its last outing. So I would suspect too that the SpaceX uh, issue will get cleared up, uh, and they'll be back in business. Unfortunately, it kind of puts their hopes for a uh, a 20 uh, launch uh, year uh, aside so waiter uh, hold that uh, order of crow until next year we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> i guess it's just not fair get it because fairing hey for once the phone brick isn't aimed at me yeah i was gonna say i gotta go find that phone brick now oh boy we've got you all choked up cat with that one sorry it's gonna be a long day folks hang in there (laughs) oh boy it's that end of the year loopiness that i guess is a thing now uh, but yep. uh, same thing with SpaceX, that end of year loopiness continuing for them as well. Uh, but we hope they get that fairing issue resolved. Again, we don't know anything more other than it is a fairing issue from another mission that they saw that they want to check on this one. And uh, of course, we will keep an eye on it. Uh, but it seems unlikely that that will launch anytime this year now. However, there is another launch set this year for SpaceX and that is the CRS-13 resupply mission to the International Space Station. That will be carrying, once again, their Dragon capsule aboard, and ready for this one, a previously flown Falcon 9 booster. This is the first ever NASA mission to fly on a previously flown booster. The one that will be used was last flown earlier this year on another resupply mission, CRS-11. And it will be launching out of, wait for it, Space Launch Complex 40. The first time SpaceX has had a launch out of that pad since the Amos 6 unexpected uh, rapid disintegrate, whatever they call it now. Rapid disintegration event. (laughs) (laughs) After, yeah, after the failure on the pad during one of their static fire tests uh, in September of 2016. However, this is the first time they're using the launch pad since then. So the launch, which was originally set for December 4th, was then pushed to Friday, December 8th. It was then delayed an extra day as they pushed back the static fire. And that was going to be Saturday, December 9th. Well, (laughs) it's still pushed back even more. Launch is now currently scheduled for December 12th. Sorry, did you did you hear anything about why there was the delay? Was it just something that 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 uh, somebody caught and said, "Yeah, we got to fix that," or 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 was it uh, is it just something that NASA's doing? Or, or... Uh, I believe it's related to the fact that they're you know launching out of this launch pad for the first time, where pretty much the entire pad had to be refurbished. The right. tell the launch structure, the TEL, had to essentially be rebuilt. One of the you know lightning rods had to be redone and. There was a lot of underground work and wiring that had to be redone also. So now that there's finally a rocket out on the pad, I'm sure they're seeing other little things that they didn't notice before and are just taking that extra time to be 100% sure that everything goes smoothly because A, you know, they want to get this launch pad back up and running and B, this is one of their most important customers in my opinion, being NASA and bringing research and supplies and food and water and things that are necessary to people in space. 
Yeah, and you don't want to blow up another rocket. That too. <laughs> Not for the U.S. taxpayer, you don't. Not for anyone, you don't. <laughs> yeah, really. So uh, that one currently scheduled for Tuesday. We were planning on being there, but, uh, well, that delay is pushing things back a little bit. But we will still, regardless, keep an eye on that CRS-13 mission and wish SpaceX the best of luck getting that one up and off safely and finally getting Slick 40 back operational. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And it's, and it's nice to see SpaceX taking their time and really making sure that they launch under the best conditions and everything's okay. So kudos, SpaceX. Yeah, I'm, I'm, with, uh, I'm with Kat on that one. I mean, there, there's also some pretty good science going on board just to uh, really, really quickly uh, go through some of the highlights here. Uh, there's a fiber optic filament experiment flying. There's another one uh, flying on how plants respond to microgravity. Uh, there's a, uh, a biosensor that's going to be used for uh, di diabetes management. Uh, there's going to be a uh, drug delivery system on board uh, for combating uh, any type of muscular atrophy and some instruments on board to measure the sun's energy input to Earth. And uh, there's also an, an uh, orbital debris sensor flying. So the ISS is also getting a space junk uh, sensor to go ahead and alert them uh, further to, uh, to orbital debris. So again, that's a, that's a big topic. As Sawyer uh, knows, it's a little bit one of that is near and dear to my heart. So it's good to see that uh, some debris mitigation is, is going on with the, uh, with the ISS. Exactly. It's also, you know, your true space geeks when space debris mitigation is near and dear to your heart. <laughs> but uh, again, we wish them the best of luck and it's always better safe than sorry. So take that extra time to make sure everything is ready to work. Just like with Falcon Heavy, take an extra five years to make sure everything is ready to work. <laughs> oh, don't. I'm <laughs> too soon. <laughs> too soon. I kid on that one, folks. We kid because we care. <laughs> <laughs> that is our next story, though, and that is the Falcon Heavy launch, which was originally scheduled for December 29th of this year, is now officially pushed to 2018. I hate to say I told you so, but if you go back a few episodes, I told you so. Uh, with Zuma now being delayed, Zuma has been taken off Launch Complex 39A, and work is now underway to finish refurbishing the launch complex to handle the Falcon Heavy launch. Uh, from what I understand, the boosters are still there, assembled and ready to go. It's just getting the launch pad and everything else ready in time. The latest that I heard is that an email from Gwen Shotwell stated that the launch will happen a few weeks after the static test fire, which will be at the beginning of the year. So figure sometime in mid-January now we can see our first Falcon Heavy launch out of 39A. I've heard a couple of sources, Sawyer, say March rather than, than January on this one. So I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not holding my breath on either. Um, we've been, this thing was supposed to fly, I believe the announcement for it, Sawyer, refresh my memory, but I think the first announcement came in, in 2012. They were talking about flying it at a Vandenberg Air Force Base in late 2013 and i guess again it strapping three falcon nines together was not the uh you know the the snap that every anybody thought that it was going to be 
and uh, from what I understand, too, they're sort of dubious that this first one's actually going to work. So we'll just have to, to watch and hold our breath and see if January gives us a, a Falcon Heavy launch or March gives us a Falcon Heavy launch. We just we have to remember that Elon time does not run parallel to Earth time. <laughs> <laughs> in our AI sim, in his AI simulation, yes. Oh boy, Kat, I'm gonna so steal that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are. I am so stealing that. But in terms of a launch date, um, Aviation Week is reporting they received an email from Gwen Shotwell at SpaceX, uh, and in it. It said, quote, we wanted to fly heavy this year. We should be able to static fire this year and fly a couple weeks right after that. So that would mean sometime in January. However, I have also heard reports of it happening in March. So we'll see which one it is, but hopefully we'll at least see a static fire this year. And uh, we also now finally have an answer to what the payload will be, supposedly now, oh, that <laughs> on was the Falcon Heavy. That was such a kerfuffle this weekend. Yeah. It was just absolutely outrageous. In case you remember, folks, uh, the first ever flight test of the Falcon 9, when that brought up supplies, it carried a wheel of cheese, a reference to Monty Python. This one is a little less Monty Python-esque and a lot more Elon musk X in that it will be carrying his car. Gene, can you help clarify the insanity that happened on Twitter oh, with this, please? Oh, good God. Sawyer, so, I'm going to try to take this from the top a little bit. The, la the first report of, of this I saw was on this past Friday night. It was about, oh, I, I'll probably say about 1045. Uh, Eric Berger, who writes for uh, RS Technica, broke the story, I think, about what Elon Musk had written on Twitter. Uh, Elon fired a tweet out there saying that he was going to put his own, uh, I believe his own uh, Tesla Roadster in the payload fairing and launch that fairing and all out to, you know, out into the void and never to be seen again course uh, Eric Berger wrote that and uh, before he did he uh, you know went through his sources the highest one and I think he actually reached out to Elon himself and Elon said quote it is totally happening so Eric went ahead stood by the story and wrote it up there then uh, there was a you know another huge kerfuffle on Twitter about it and you know people kind of going back and forth and um, it, I believe uh, Lauren Grush out of uh, from the verge also reached out and uh she's she was like yeah it sounds like this is happening well then elon tells lauren adds it was just you know it was just all a joke so lauren writes a an article based on elon's story saying that this was a joke and okay the joke's on us well, apparently the joke is on everybody because Elon said, no, it's true. And apparently SpaceX has confirmed it's true. And uh, I, I lost track of the story um, by Saturday. I believe I was I was as exasperated as uh, a couple other individuals, including the uh, the aforementioned Lauren Grush, that, you know, our heads had just basically exploded. And we just said, we're just going to like leave the story alone because it just it was just changing more often than you and I change our shirts you know, for for a day or whatever. I mean, it, it was I mean, it was just it was just getting outrageous. So we just kind of left it alone. SpaceX has eventually confirmed the story that that's going to happen. 
And I'm, I'm still trying to scratch my head. I guess Elon's looking for the most ridiculous thing that he could fly on that. And he just thought that his old car, his own car, was the most ridiculous thing he could fly on it. Um, but as much as I hate to say this, I think the very, very sensible thing came out of the uh, the blog uh, NASA Watch, where the uh, the writers over there said, "Hey, Elon, why don't you just auction the car off and give the 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 proceeds to a to a STEM related uh, group?" But uh, nope, that's apparently the he wants to see the car go out and into the void and just keep on going past Mars and just keep on going and going and going. So where it's going to be running around forever out, out in, in the void. Well, it takes a, it takes a special person to, to deliberately litter in space. Yeah, I guess. And one of the, <laughs> one of the wild parts of this story was that everybody thought he was going to shoot it to Mars and leave it in Mars orbit. So then this way, maybe, you know, at some future time, he could be reunited with his vehicle if, Perchance SpaceX is able to go ahead and see its dream of, you know, terraforming the world or, or whatever. Uh, I mean, it, or, or the thing was going to soft land on Mars. That was one of the other rumors that were flying around. Haha, ha, flying around? Yeah. Sorry. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to grab that brick at both of you next time I, when I see you. Um, <laughs> so, but, uh, but at any rate, yeah, the, uh, but but the story was just so it was just getting so convoluted. I I just could not keep track of it anymore. No, and... I remember I watched a little bit of it as well, and I was just sort of shook my head and said, "Of course, you know why? <laughs> why not take the opportunity to to send up some valuable research or do something meaningful or you know help people on Earth or." <laughs> anything yeah i mean i would have i would have i would have given a bunch of kids you know maybe a, a ride on a on a you know a free ride for with cubesats or something in the i mean that it you might. know if there's if there's something if he wants to put something up and just jettison it out to leave earth forever i can give much better suggestions than his car I, I, oh honest, i can't want to bring up some kids cubesats on something where elon said if it doesn't blow up the launch pad it would be a success it pays you money and takes the chances it's 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 you know if, if you're going to go ahead and um, say that this thing is you're getting the room free, and you know, or it could be a with... great if you think it might blow up on the on the launch pad. Great opportunity to test maybe some fire retardant materials, maybe yeah. some escape systems. I'm just saying, there's there's a lot more valuable things that could be launched other than a car. But I'm that's with... Elon for you. Yeah, I'm with Cat. Anyway, but also I totally take your point, Sawyer. Maybe putting like children's experiments, kids' experiments, you know, unless maybe older, <laughs> you know, like oh, you get to chance to fly something to space. But <laughs> sorry, kindergartner, your thing might blow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if a kindergartner is making a cube set, NASA should hire them then. But yeah, <laughs> I was being a little facetious there, but <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I just I think it's just. And then I think I also am being a bit facetious with, with Elon, but I, I think it's a lost opportunity, and I'm hoping that maybe that opinion will be changed or that plan will be changed. But you got to give him credit. He is getting some fantastic PR out of this, dragging it out multiple days through multiple sources, and uh, can't say that us as reporters are happy about it, but um, again, you know, people are talking about it. And that, I think, was the whole point. No one said he's a dumb man. He just doesn't go about it the best way in some times. 
All right, uh, so we continue along then. Again, Elon Musk says that if Falcon Heavy doesn't blow up the launch pad, it will be a success. Well, in Russia, they have a very different definition of the word <laughs> success. And for them, success is getting something successfully into its correct orbit, which, unfortunately, they cannot say about one of their most recent launches. Back in the end of November, on November 29th, a Soyuz 2.1B rocket in one of their frigate formations. On board the frigate was the Meteor M2 weather satellite, along with 19 other smaller satellites from multiple countries, including US, Canada, Japan, and other European countries. Everything went well until a failure with the upper stage that failed to put it into its correct orbit and most likely had it falling back into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Gene, we now know what caused it, and um, it's almost as bad as the time they installed the gyro sensor upside down. What was the cause of this one? Yeah, what happened was this particular uh, forget up upper stage, uh, just to uh, set the, no pun intended, just to set the stage for everybody. The uh... <laughs> <laughs> You want a little share of your brick? <laughs> I had to, sorry. Uh, the, this particular upper, upper stage uh, was configured to fly on a booster uh, that was set to go out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome. And on the launch site where uh, this particular Soyuz booster launched from was the uh, Vososhny Cosmodrome. And this was the second launch out of that well, somebody didn't tell that to the third stage. Uh, and I'm looking at, uh, to confirm, I'm looking at uh, the uh, website Russian Space Web, uh, and I'm going to quote directly from them here. Although the information is still preliminary, it's increasingly clear that uh, all the hardware on board the frigate up upper stage performed as planned, but almost unbelievably, the flight control system on the frigate did not have the correct settings for the mission originating from Vasochny as opposed to the uh, launch routines from, from Baikonur. As a result, the cargo separated from the, from the third stage of the launch, launch vehicle. Its flight control system began commanding a change of orientation for the stack to compensate for what the computer thought was a deviation to correct the, the attitude. As a result, the stage began a set of pre-programmed main engine firings, with the vehicle in the wrong attitude, and it led to all kinds of maneuvering issues. And, well, long story short, they lost the vehicle. To invoke the uh, Dr. Gregory House axiom for Occam's razor, sometimes the easiest explanation is somebody screwed up. And in this case, that's exactly what it was. Uh, the the left hand just did not tell the right hand what it was doing, and uh, and that was it. So, but to just get some more confidence in in the Soyuz booster itself, uh, Russia had uh, launched over the weekend, I believe it was Saturday, um, from the same booster, and I don't believe it was the same third stage, but the same booster at a Baikonur uh, for uh, a several for a military satellite, and it it went up. Uh, just fine. But again, I, I believe Sawyer too, um, and I'm looking at something here from the Planetary Society. There have been, according to this article here, 15 launch failures from Russia in about six years. 
from about 2001 onward through current. And this is a gentleman, Jason Davis, that writes for the Planetary Society here. Uh, and he lists um, all of them. You can go to planetary.org. And I, I'm, I hate to bring this up, but we had this conversation uh, back when the shuttle was ending. I mean, Atlantis's APUs weren't even cold, and 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 whereas Cosmos was doubting, you know, was touting, if you will, the era of reliability right on their website. Sometimes you don't revel in that because it can turn around and bite you. You're only as good as your last launch, and uh, unfortunately, it's it's been a has been a less than stellar record of late. And to me, it looks like it's just a uh, uh, a symptom of a problem that's going on within the Russian space program. And, uh, keep in mind, too, Russia has the Soyuz. And the Soyuz right now, the Soyuz spacecraft, is the only thing that can get crew back and forth to the ISS. So in in my opinion, too, we've really got to go ahead and get uh, uh, Boeing and uh, SpaceX online as quickly and as safely as possible. Again, th this is an endemic problem, and we really, really need to go ahead and address it. And I'm sure the folks behind the scenes over at NASA are, are doing that to ensure the safety of our crews as they fly on Soyuz. But as far as the rest of the program over there is concerned, they've got some problems. And I, I just don't understand or just don't see how they're going to go ahead and make any progress uh, to, uh, to address all these issues. Yeah, that era of Soyuz reliability every time seems to come back. But yeah, you're right. It seems like this year... We've reported a lot more launch failures, especially in Russia. I know China's had a bunch there, too. But, you know, it's it's kind of scary that this is so normal, and yet they're still continuing to launch them, and we still have people going up on a variant of it. And what's most frustrating is when hearing it is these little things. Again, like I was referring back to, I believe it was a Proton launch a few years ago, where they literally installed the gyro sensor upside down, so when it was going up, it thought it was going down. The same thing with this, that someone literally forgot to tell the computer where the rocket was. It's essentially what it comes down to. And, you know, it's those little things. And you worry that, hey, if they're launching people on this too, what happens if they miss one little thing there? So, you know, that's, that's I feel, I feel you hit it right on the head, Gene. Yeah, and, and it makes me nervous, to be honest. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm hoping that at some point in time we can just, augment Soyuz with our own vehicles and I'm I'm really really hoping that that happens soon uh, I know cargo wise we're just fine with the vehicles we've got we've got a new one coming in the pipeline um, but the other two vehicles uh, the uh, the Boeing uh, CST 100 Starliner and the uh, uh, the Crew Dragon from SpaceX they are running well, they're running a little behind and I'm just hoping that uh, things can get addressed and we can get those two vehicles flying at least, you know, within a reasonable amount of time and uh, and pick up the slack. I mean, grant you, we're going to have two new spacecraft, which means obviously they're going to have some bugs here and there. But we'll shake out those bugs and, and, and make sure that uh, things are things are OK. But. Uh, I'm sure those those will be minor. I don't think we're going to have you know the the problems that we're seeing here and in, in on the scale we're seeing with Russia. So, again, I agree. I also I, I also feel like the U.S. is a little more precautious when it comes to this kind of stuff. Again, you know, if there's a cloud, a boat, a breeze 
NASA will delay a launch, and uh, especially with people on board. And um, so I feel like that'll be part of it. And we'll actually have a little bit of an update on that commercial crew status uh, in our last episode of the year, our Christmas special. Uh, I actually got to go inside the Boeing CST-100 trainer uh, and get an update on where they are with that. So uh, stay tuned for that episode, too, uh, to get even more of an update. But uh, again, I'm with you on that. Well, let's hope that's the last launch failure of the year, especially considering there are very few launches left this year. And uh, let's hope that it's a better year for all launch companies next year. More launches, fewer failures. And I've had people say to me, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to see one of those rockets blow up in person? I'm like, no, no. it wouldn't. No, 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 I mean, no. Yes, it would look spectacular, but knowing what's happening there, the you know, all this hard work and millions of dollars worth of science and satellites and stuff is getting destroyed before your eyes is horrific. Sawyer, I was supposed to be at CR at the um, Orb 3 launch and it just things didn't work out. And I am so glad I wasn't, to be honest with you. Uh, it, it, I mean, it was one of those from what I, everybody tells me, it was just one of those those moments you don't forget and you don't forget you don't forget it for the you know for all the wrong reasons and uh and the last thing you want to do is to be jumping around celebrating when that happens to anyone and you know we're not trust me guys we're not celebrating what occurred with 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 uh with with the roscosmos problem trust me uh, when when somebody stumbles, we don't celebrate here. We we go, you know, we we go ahead. We expect the players to go ahead, find out what went wrong, fix it, go fly again, dust themselves off, and you know, demonstrate how quickly you can go ahead and overcome a a problem like that. But believe me, guys, we don't really want to see any of that. We we want to see people succeed. I think I can speak for us all when we say every every time something goes wrong, it it's you know we we're there, we feel it, and it it hurts. Cat again, I mean you were you were with us for that night, and it was it was a night I'm 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 not going to forget for a very long time, and I wasn't even there. Same. I remember as soon as I had actually fallen asleep during Orb Three and woke up to uh, twenty million text messages and. Uh, I know we got on immediately that night on Skype and started recording a show, and we were all feeling it. But uh, again, hopefully they'll get back up and running. And thankfully, uh, Orbital ATK up and running once again after they successfully launched their OA-8 mission back in November with the SS Gene Cernan Cygnus vehicle to the International Space Station. That Antares launch thankfully going perfectly fine out of Wallops Island, Virginia. But now, after serving its purpose aboard the International Space Station, Gene is on his way home. Right, Gene? Yes, sir. The Cygnus is going to be uh, set free, and our little swan will go sailing um, at 8.10 in, uh, a.m. tomorrow morning. That's Wednesday, December 6th. Um, expedition flight uh, engineer uh, Mark Vandehei and Joe Acaba will go ahead and... Uh, uh, supervise operations. Cygnus will carry about uh, uh, 5,500 pounds of uh, you know, disposable refuse on board, but it also has some things it needs to complete uh, before it re-enters the atmosphere on December 18th. It has about 14 CubeSats from an um, external uh, NanoRacks deployer 
uh, to go ahead and, and launch off at various orbits. And, and this is one of the things that they're hoping uh, Cygnus can do in the future, uh, where uh, it would actually act as a free-flying uh, laboratory for people that want to run autonomous experiments on board, um, where you know, basically you may not have the, the opportunity to get these things to fly on the ISS, or it might actually even be augmenting ISS operations. So if you've got an autonomous experiment or an experiment that can be controlled from the ground, uh, Cygnus could go ahead and fly it for you. Um, also, it could launch uh, CubeSats. Right now, yes, indeed, the ISS is a CubeSat launcher, but it's kind of stuck in the ISS's orbit. If you want to go ahead and launch your CubeSat in a lower or higher orbit, you can't do that from ISS. Cygnus can go ahead and do that for you. So it's it's one of the things that uh, uh, Orbital ATK is uh, is taking a look at seriously for future applications for Cygnus, and uh, hopefully they'll be able to go ahead and get that coalesced and and uh, get that uh, business model off the ground and going. Again, um, the SS Jean Cernan, although she's uh, she's flying the uh, the nest from the ISS, and uh, will be. Uh, doing a destructive reentry on December 18th. She's got she's still got a lot of work to do and uh we'll be keeping an eye on on the mission and we'll report back with any uh any news from that but uh, so far so good and it looks like uh Cygnus is uh going to have a a good finish to her uh to her mission. So, uh you mentioned uh in a previous story how we were talking about all these other vehicles that are coming up online. Uh, we want to take a step back to finish off our launch roundup here and take a look at a launch that happened three years ago to the week that we're recording this, and that was the EFT-1 mission, NASA's first journey on its way to getting people back into space. It was the Orion capsule that was launched aboard a Delta IV Heavy at a Space Launch Complex 37B at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. The entire team of Talking Space was there for that launch. And as we now are talking about news of EM-1 getting pushed to 2019, probably 2020 now, and everything like that, and we were all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at EFT-1. What do you think looking back three years on that mission now? Wow. Um, first off, th there, there are three things I remember, Sawyer, from that day vividly. Uh, was... Mike Curie's commentary. We heard it coming over the loudspeaker. And liftoff at dawn. The dawn of Orion and a new era of American space exploration. That alone gives you chills because it was indeed the dawn of a new era. Like it or not, this was going to be the, uh, the vehicle that is going to fly U.S. astronauts to different exploratory destinations. It will probably be a linchpin on a Mars effort, perhaps, uh, but it definitely will be integral if we do decide to go back to the moon uh, to uh, to get crews back and forth uh, from from the uh, the lunar surface back to Earth. Either way, it is going to be the linchpin for our, our exploratory efforts. Um, the second one was Rob Navius uh, declaring that you know after all three shoots had deployed. Uh, America, here's your new spacecraft. And as this thing was coming down, uh, we learned, too, that they were, 
I believe Sawyer, and so there were 78 uh, pieces of equipment and so on, that, or, or 78 things that they really, really wanted to see happen during this whole thing. They missed only two. One of them was a, was a sensor dropout. And the other one was, uh, I believe, that the, one of the balloons that sort of uh, right the spacecraft in the event that it lands in a in the uh, in the ocean. Uh, but if it lands in a in a orientation that you know is not upright, uh, these balloons inflate. It's similar to the Apollo uh, spacecraft, where where a set of balloons inflates up top and rewrites the spacecraft. They didn't need the, these balloons because it ended up in a in a stable one uh, configuration, which is right upright anyway. But uh, had it gone into stable two, which is like on its side or something like that, you'd need the balloon to inflate and and bring it right side up. One of those balloons failed, and they figured out the reason why, and and that worked like a charm. And uh, and the third thing was just the vibe around there. This was it was a very very upbeat vibe even though we had the delay the launch delay on the 4th and we were snake bit that day. Everything you name it it went wrong. There was a technical problem. Then I believe the winds were blowing and then we had a a, a boat wander into the the launch zone where it shouldn't have been. Wayward boats. Yep. Again. Oh yes, yeah. maven wayward cruise ship. Even. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it was a wayward cruise ship actually. Um, you know, even with that little setback, everybody was just really, really up. It was a very upbeat kind of, even the, the two days was just very, very optimistic, very, very upbeat. And everybody was just, yeah, we can't wait to see this thing go. Um, three years out, have we had any disappointments? Well, it's more like budgetary setbacks have kind of pushed things backward and, and so on. And of course, whenever you have a, a development program, as the folks over at SpaceX will tell you, uh, things get a little weird and, you, you know, things get thrown at you that you didn't expect. We didn't expect, for instance, a tornado to hit Mashoud. You know, we didn't expect uh, this welding system that we have for the core stage of the, the space launch system to give us so many fits. We didn't expect the service module to be as late as it has been. All in all, I guess what I'm getting at is we are slowly marching our way to... Well, back then we thought we were going to Mars. Right now, I, the the current administration seems to want to hit the moon first. We don't know really what's going on with all of that. I mean, NASA. Uh, there was an article again by Eric Berger not too too long ago that basically highlighted the fact that NASA currently has gone through the longest period it ever has without an administrator. Although Robert Lightfoot is doing you know a, a, a yeoman's job. At, uh, at keeping uh, things together, uh, it's good to have finally that person at the lead, whoever he or she might be, to go ahead and conduct the business of the agency. Just a, a side note on um, Bob Lightfoot. So I got to meet with him while we were uh, at IAC. And one thing that has been different with this administration um, is he mentioned to us that he has met with high-level administration officials, basically the vice president, uh, three or four times since the administration took office, which um, is a good thing. NASA certainly has the ear of the administration. So we've definitely talked about how it's a mixed bag, especially dealing with climate change and other issues. But uh, one thing for sure that this administration is invested into the space program, um, 
you know, it might not be exactly what everyone wants it to look like, but at least they're interested, which is more than we can say for past administrations. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, Kat, I'm, I'll, I'll agree with you there, and I'll also agree with the, the, the earth science stuff on, on you there, too. But having the direct link to the administration is really, really critical if we're going to go ahead and, and get anywhere. And it, it seems to me that at least what you just said, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more gratified hearing that because I, I kind of wonder sometimes. But uh, uh, that that's good to hear. What do I think after, you know, three years out? Yeah, we still have have some problems. The program is it's an R&D program. It's 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 not there yet. We still don't know when exactly EM1 is going to launch next. Uh EM1 is uh folks might know is going to be the first launch of the space launch system and the first launch of a much more robust Orion vehicle that uh they're going to go ahead and really really kick the tar out of. I, I just want to see this program progress. It deserves it, and uh, I think the United States deserves a good, uh, good exploratory program at this point. We've, we've been going around in circles for forty years. I've said this before on on this program. It's time to go back and, and uh, you know, let's go somewhere again and get our feet wet. And Orion, you know, the, the launch of EFT one was the first step in doing that and getting out of the the gravity well and going forward and i'm hoping to see that push continue it's going to happen it's going it may not happen as fast as we want it to but it's going to happen i remember there and immediately after everyone comparing that to say apollo 4 you know the first right. unmanned test flight of the saturn 5 and it's kind of that same vibe i remember though looking at it now it was like okay Apollo 4, that was going to be the big thing, and then a few years later, the Apollo program would kick into full gear. Here we are, more than a few years later, and the program's still kind of puttering along. But I, it was great at the time to revitalize the nation. It had been three years since we'd had, you know, a launch that people were so invested in that, you know, would advance the future of human spaceflight from U.S. soil. And it was a big shining moment. The country finally rejoiced around the space program. And like you mentioned, Kat, again, we're finally starting to rejoice around the space program a little bit, at least at a government level. Now it's just getting it back to the people level. And I think a lot of that's going to be getting this next flight off. And as the flight gets pushed back farther and farther, and as EFT-1 gets farther and farther in the rearview mirror, I worry that we're also getting farther and farther away now from that goal of getting the passion back. I mean, at every stage during reentry, and I was in a large auditorium. You were over at the over at the press center, and just the applause. I mean, the the absolute cheering at each level of reentry that the, that filled that auditorium was just. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. And that's one of the things, as much as I, you know, it, and I hate to sound jingoistic, but it, it, it's, it's one of the things that really, really energizes the country, basically saying, hey, this is the stuff we're really, really capable of doing if we go ahead, get our best minds together and go ahead and get them busy on, on a grand project. And it just, it, it, it was just such a, it was probably one of the grand feel-good stories for 2014. I think I really, you know, speaking of the grand project, I had a moment during that and we, uh, of course, were able to uh, to sit down with Jack Fisher and, and hear his comments about 
um, this being a generational project. And for me, it was really good to see us embark on these generational projects because, you know, what is it that we have that inspires the next generation that will be the ones eventually making the decisions about Mars and, and where we go from the moon or from the Mars or where we go next in, in exploration. And just to sort of watch the, the dawn of a new age at dawn. Um, and I watched it uh, from atop the VAB, which to see the sunrise from there was just a great privilege. Um, that And then to be able to watch it from there is also, again, just a great privilege. And so just this idea of seeing forward progress and, and, and seeing us move beyond the familiar into something uncomfortable. Um, I think we've seen that progress have stalled some. So I would like to see reinvigoration and, and see that uh, continue to move forward uh, with a clear vision and a clear direction. And I think when it comes to sort of national space policy, we don't have that clear vision and clear direction yet. But, you know, once we get a new NASA director, we have the National Space Council has been reinstituted. Um, that's what I hope to see. I was nodding my head throughout that entire thing. <laughs> I couldn't have said that any better. Agreed. And again, just thinking back at the press site as it was coming down, there was a group of like three or four astronauts hanging out and just seeing them watching the TV, seeing their next spacecraft come back down and them cheering and high-fiving and everything. Yeah. And that was just inspiring again like they said america you know this is your next spacecraft and here's the astronauts going this is our next spacecraft and uh now it's just waiting to finally see that next spacecraft fly again which uh the next one for that is em1 which as we mentioned nasa has set for december of 2019 although it is extremely likely as mentioned that will more likely be middle of the year 2020 Myself, along with Robin Simengal, who is the uh, space writer for Wired Magazine, uh, took a trip and worked on story together at the Johnson Space Center. And uh, while we were there, we got an update on the commercial crew program, uh, some of the astronaut training procedures, including taking a look at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, uh, and we also got to talk a lot about Orion and EM-1 and the progress on that. And uh, that's why I say that 2020 sounds very likely. Uh, from what they were telling us, the their training side, they're pretty much ready. Orion side, they're pretty much ready. And uh, they're right on their timeline of what they were expecting. You know, plus or minus a few months was what they told us. And we'll have that full interview for you again in our Christmas special. But they did say something in that interview that was extremely interesting. And uh, I looked it up. I have not seen this posted anywhere. So this is a Talking Space World exclusive here uh, with an update on the mission profile for EM-1. So I'm going to uh, hand this over to Jim Spivey, who works with the Orion program. Uh, and we talked to him at the Johnson Space Center in front of their Orion mock-up capsule that they were currently using for egress training about a week before we got there. And uh, this is what his layout is for the mission profile of em1 and um listen for how long the mission is going to be this is something that's never been heard before i'll give you a quick mission overview yeah. so we'll like you said we'll launch from kennedy space center 
Um, you know, after about eight minutes, we'll separate the uh, the core stage SLS rocket. Mm -hmm. We'll still have the upper stage uh, engine that's part of the SLS vehicle. Right. Uh, that will then get us into orbit. We'll do a, a uh, we'll do probably uh, I think we'll do maybe one uh, loop around the Earth. Really? So you're going to do a slingshot around the Earth? We'll okay. we'll we'll, we'll yeah. for because we we will make sure we're ready to go and do the TLI burn. So we'll do yeah. that one loop around the Earth. Mm -hmm. And then we'll do what we call TLI, so translunar injection burn. So that'll be with the, with the big uh, upper stage engines. We'll do that burn, and then we'll head off to towards the moon. So we'll travel. It's about, uh, I think it's about a three to four day trip. Mm -hmm. So we'll travel out to the moon, and then we'll do a, what we're calling a near retrograde orbit. So if you think about the Earth here and the moon there, it's, we'll get to the moon. We'll do uh, a loop around the moon and then do a very elliptical orbit okay. down either north or south of the moon, if you think about it in 2D terms. Is that terms. cislunar orbit? Yes, so that'd be cislunar orbit. And, and that will actually take us farther than we went on uh, the Apollo missions. Oh, wow, okay. And so we'll do... For, the, further out beyond yes. the moon's... Yes, okay. yes, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, now we're not landing on the moon like right, Apollo right. did, but we'll yeah. we go further out. Mm -hmm. And so we'll do that, and our plan is to do uh, have a 21-day mission. There is some talk of maybe extending that to a 45-day mission. So Because, uh, yeah, Ju I think it was Jules who uh, down at ONC. Mm -hmm. He said uh, uh, it was going to be a twenty day. So yeah. I think that was the, what they had told me last year. Yes, twenty one day. So you guys are exploring plane. the opportunity. Absolutely. To, yeah. So we'll look at our consumables on board the spacecraft yeah. and how it's performing, and, and then we'll, we'll then we'll get back into a, what I call a, a low uh, lunar orbit, and then you know come back home, do the kind of slingshot back home, and then land in uh, the Pacific Ocean, very similar to uh, the Apollo missions, and then do recovery. Sawyer, did I hear that right? We're talking about a possible 45-day mission for EM-1. Correct. As of right now, it's the original 21-day plan, but then they will take a look at consumables on board the spacecraft, how well it's performing, and uh, if all goes well, they have the option to then extend this to a 45-day mission. So, with that said, EM-1 now may be a 45-day-long mission around the moon. You know, this is going to be a prime opportunity to really, really beat up on that spacecraft. I know there was some talk initially of having EM-1 piloted right out of the box. I didn't, I, I didn't think that was such a great idea, to be honest with you, because when you have people on board, you got to treat the spacecraft with kid gloves. Without people on board, you could really do some things with that spacecraft that you normally could not do and really, really push that vehicle to its limits. And if we go ahead, you know, things look fine. Uh, we push it out to like a 45-day run, I believe. I mean, that's, that's mind-boggling. So they could really, really do some stuff, really put this vehicle through its paces and really, really go ahead and demonstrate that this thing is really ready for personnel. The, the only thing that the vehicle, I believe, Sawyer won't have is the actual life support system that will fly. But Bill Gerstenmeier has basically said in the past that elements of that life support system are already flying on the International Space Station. That's correct. And that's exactly what Jim Spivey told us later on in that interview as well, which will play in its full uh, on our next episode. But yeah, he said that um, the big thing being like the CO2 scrubbers, the carbon dioxide scrubbers, and uh, like you mentioned, all of that currently aboard the ISS. So it's being tested with humans. It just hasn't been integrated into this exact uh, capsule. Right. So I, I think there's a fairly good confidence level in that kind of in in the life support system as it stands, because again, they've been using 
similar equipment on board the ISS now for, for years. It's just, it's never been incorporated into this particular vehicle, which is still a bit of a question mark, but uh, it's it, it's one that, that apparently folks can, can live with. And I believe there's still going to be some elements of the life support system on board this this one, just not the whole up and running running system at that point. But this is really, really a golden opportunity to go ahead and beat up on the spacecraft and make sure it's ready ready for people to fly. And if they can go ahead and even increase this thing to 45 five days, that would just be just mind-boggling. One of the things I am so looking forward to hearing again, sorry, because the last time I heard heard this was when I was a little kid. I was watching the Apollo 16 mission, and, you know, you, you heard, you know, people say go for TLI and it just it's you know knowing what that meant um, it it gives you goosebumps and I'm hoping that we get that up and going and and people you know that were that are now six and seven years old can hear that and it will capture their imagination as much as it did mine when I was that age. Agreed. And I have to say, just sitting there, we did that interview sitting right in front of the actual Orion mock-up capsule. So full-scale, full-size uh, that the astronauts have been using for uh, egress training in the event of an emergency. They were just doing it a week or two before we were there. And uh, it's all inspiring That thing is pretty big for a capsule, all things considered. And... Uh, they had cameras inside, so you could actually see the configuration of the seats, which we hadn't really seen before. It's a unique configuration and uh, other information like that. So it's if that's all inspiring, just getting to see it like that, imagine seeing it fly and uh, hearing those call-outs. And it's, it's going to be great. So um, you guys are definitely going to want to tune in for our Christmas special where uh, we talk with Mike Fink, uh, an astronaut who is also working with the Commercial Proof Program, in fact, we were sitting inside the actual trainer for the Boeing CST-100 Starliner while it was doing an automated docking procedure. Uh, we talked with Steve Bowen, who was one of those astronauts that was doing the egress training, helping to train uh, for the Orion missions. He hasn't said whether he's flying or not, as well as Jim Spivey, who you just heard there, uh, talking all about the Orion program and updates on EM1 and EM2. So uh, stay tuned for Talking Space taking over the Johnson Space Center uh, in just a few weeks for your uh, Christmas enjoyment to end up the year. Yeah, you'll definitely have you'll definitely have something to uh, to listen to when you're going over the river and through the woods to Grandma's house on this one. Trust me, uh, from what Sawyer was describing to me about this, you really want to hang around and wait because this is going to be one you want to fasten your seatbelts to. Exactly. And Robin C. Miguel, who was there, will be joining us for this show. And uh, we've got some great stories to regale for you guys. So uh, we hope you'll stay for that one. And again, thank you to uh, Brandy Dean over at the Johnson Space Center for helping to set up that interview there. So we continue along now. A uh, few stories left here, but this one's still big and worth mentioning. Uh, it happened back in November, but the Dream Chaser, sometimes called the Mini Space Shuttle, made by Sierra Nevada, had its most recent drop test in which it was carried up aboard a helicopter. It was dropped and then landed safely at Edwards Air Force Base. If you remember last time they tried one of these drop tests, the nose gear failed aboard the vehicle, but they used that as a learning experience because the vehicle mostly survived. And uh, that one <laughs> they learned from, they tried again, 
and this time everything working perfectly. Uh, in a press conference phone call that they had afterwards, they said everything was right on the money. They even did a few S-turns like the space shuttle used to do to practice slowing itself down before landing, and it looked like everything got the green light on this drop test. Yes, Sawyer, in in all honesty, the the landing gear that uh, is being used on this particular vehicle, uh, first the vehicle, if I recall from the the news conference, the vehicle is sort of analogous to the the space shuttle Enterprise. Uh, It is something that they probably won't fly again after this. Uh, The vehicle is not even using the same landing gear that... uh, uh, the actual vehicle will use the 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 uh, landing gear on the test vehicle. I believe come from a, from one of the old F five fighters. The landing gear that they're going to be using for Dream Chaser is something you know much more robust. But it was still a good experiment to go ahead and and take a look at um, what what this thing would really do and what it would look like and how it would maneuver and. Uh, one of the other things too that they replaced, I believe, and it was something too that I think Enterprise had was a large boom at the at the nose of the vehicle. Um, they replaced it with several sensors inside the nose cap, which was able to go ahead and get all the the airspeed data that they needed. Uh, all in all, everybody was really really pleased with what they saw, what uh, what the data sent back. They were just absolutely ecstatic from what they were they were looking at they're going to sit there and analyze most of it but um at the time of the uh, the press conference it was you know everybody was was, was smiling mark serangelo and steve Lindsay, who were in on it they were they were just absolutely ecstatic over it so um it's it looks like it's a good start for uh, for dream chaser and in fact sawyer steve Lindsay, who was part of that uh, that press conference was asked how did he feel with um dream chaser coming down and because it everybody as you said Sawyer kind of uh, looks at dream chaser as sort of a mini shuttle as this audience knows Steve Lindsay flew uh, the final flight for us uh, uh, special discovery he, w- he was uh, discovery's commander plus he's fl- flown others and he was asked did this kind of seem or look familiar or what his thoughts were as dream chaser was coming in so We'll go ahead and give his reactions now. Well, I have to confess that, uh, you know, like any pilot, I grade every landing I see. So I was, in in, in my head, I was grading the landing. And and it landed great. Uh, I I won't comment on whether I think I could have landed better than it did. But um, being a pilot, you know, we all have big egos, so we all think that. But anyway... No, it landed. It landed great. It was uh, it was a flashback for me when I was watching the trajectory as it's as it's diving down. You know, it looked obviously very very familiar with me. Um, I felt like I kind of knew what it was feeling as it was as it was flying because I've been there a few times myself. And so, but it was uh, it was an interesting moment for us because you know for for a program this is a really critical flight test for us. And and you uh, remember talking to the team before we. Uh, before we went out there and said, you know, hey, we've done all of this testing, we've done everything. One of the questions Mark asked the team, is there anything else out there that you think we should test that we haven't tested yet? And, and the team unanimously came back and said, we've done everything we can do. I told the team, and said, you know, looks great here in the hangar, looks nice and safe and beautiful, um, but that's not what we built it for. We built it 
to fly it, and it was time to go fly. So it was uh, probably, for collectively for us, probably the longest minute of our lives watching it, um, but it was sure was rewarding at the end when it touched down safely. So that, again, was just his thoughts, but... Uh... Again, hats off to the folks over at SNC, and uh, and we're expecting Dream Chaser, I believe, to start flying in almost want to say 2019 at some point, because I think that's when the CRS2 contracts kick in. And uh, I believe they said 2019 or 2020. Right. I'm trying to remember exactly from that press conference, but uh, again, I remember hearing that him, you know, when they asked of like how to compare that to shuttle and. Just hearing his reaction to that, it was like it, it was it was fascinating. Again, reiterating the whole mini shuttle thing, and I remember someone also asking like if he wished he could have taken over the controls of it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's a cool looking vehicle. And again, the biggest thing with Dream Chaser is there will finally be a second vehicle with down mass capability, meaning stuff can finally come back from the ISS without it having to burn up. Because right now. Dragon is the only capsule that allows for that with the Cygnus vehicle burning up in the atmosphere. So it's exciting to see it succeeding. It's exciting to see it back online. And it's exciting to hear about it from an astronaut's perspective who flew a larger version of the same type of vehicle. So uh, best of luck to Sierra Nevada with their Dream Chaser. All right. uh, So we're going to finish things off here. Uh, you know, normally we work our way outward, like from Earth to the moon to Mars or whatever. We're going way out. We're going past the solar system. We're going into interstellar space here. And uh, no, don't start playing the interstellar soundtrack. But uh, we're going out to Voyager 1, the first vehicle to leave the solar system officially. Uh, that little vehicle that could, that launched back in the 1970s, brought online some of its backup thrusters which will help use to steer it and fun fact they work still after all of these years way out past the solar system it still has working thrusters the backup ones is this not crazy or what yeah sorry it's been about 37 years since those thrusters had been used the idea uh these thrusters just fire out these small little tiny pulses or puffs they last just a a few milliseconds, and they're just basically to subtly, you know, kind of rotate uh, Voyager and get it into the right orientation so it can communicate with Earth. But they haven't really needed these things since about 1980, at least on Voyager 1. And uh, lo and behold, the whole game plan behind this was to try to see if they could get some more years out of Voyager 1 and put it into a, a, a good orientation so it could go ahead and continue to send uh, data about the, uh, the interstellar environment back to Earth. Mind you, Voyager 1 is about 13 billion miles away from home. Just stop and think about that for a second. We are sending a signal 13 billion miles into space to a small spacecraft that's been out there for you know since the since the 70s, and lo and behold, the darn thing responded. the 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 engines, which are these these little little vernier thrusters, which are designed by Aerojet Rocketdyne, 
uh, believe from the uh, NASA release I'm looking at, uh, the thrusters are called the MR-103 thrusters. They've flown on this spacecraft. They've also flown on Cassini. They've also flown on Dawn. And, uh, you know, so they're, 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 they're tried and true. But this little trajectory correction maneuver uh, basically gives Voyager 1 some additional life. To quote the project manager for Voyager at NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Susan Dodd, quote, With these thrusters that are still functioning after 37 years without use, we'll be able to extend the life of Voyager 1 by two to three years, which was really, really the end game on this. So they're hoping to do the same for Voyager 2. And they were a little bit dubious about Voyager 1 because Voyager 1's thrusters were still kind of, well, fragile. Um, Voyager 2 is also on course to enter inter interstellar space, likely within the next couple of years. But they may do the same maneuver with Voyager 2 as well. And I believe, according to the article here, the thrusters on Voyager 2 are, are, are in a little bit better shape than Voyager 1. In fact, according to the article here I'm, I'm looking at, and this is a NASA.gov article, the attitude control thrusters currently used for Voyager 2 are not yet as degraded as Voyager 1. So Voyager 2 might be in better better position once once we, we get to that point and needing that that kind of controlled burn. But gosh darn it, 37 seven years? Uh, I mean, that's mind-boggling. It, it, <laughs> Every two years I have to get a new phone because it stops working, and yet these thrusters 37 years later are still going. Oh, I, the era of non-planned obsolescence. Oh man, I mean, I, just, I mean, I was when the I, I, I don't want. I mean, I'm. I don't want to tell you how old I how old I was when when these things launched. But it boggles my mind to think that 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 these little spacecraft that have been around since you know I've been around just a few years longer than than they have, um, have have just wow. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it still boggles my mind that 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 these thrusters are, are, are still working and that these vehicles are still up and working. I, I really, really have to give kudos to everybody involved on the Voy Voyager project. Sawyer, you had a chance to do that um, in person a couple of years ago at Space Fest. I believe that was Space Fest 6. But, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give it to them, to them now. Hats off to everybody that, that had anything to do with the, these spacecraft that even just turned a, a bolt on them. You guys did, did one heck of a job, and... Um, again, hats off to, to the folks over at Aerojet Rockendyne, too, that uh, designed the, these thrusters. And, uh, again, they're, they're tried and true. They're, they're going to be on, you know, future interplanetary spacecraft. So, And, folks, your tax dollar at work, these guys, you know, both Voyager 1 and 2 are, are still, you know, they're, they're the virtual energizer bunnies. They, they keep on going. And uh, they'll, they'll still be able to go ahead and, and, and deliver some incredible data about the uh, the interstellar medium and uh, we're looking forward to that and because of this maneuver we may have just increased uh, at least one of their lives uh, by about three years so looking forward to more data from Voyager 1 and uh, hopefully it'll hang in there uh, power wise and and be able to deliver some good science going forward exactly I mean it's still fascinating beyond all belief that something that was built in the mid to late 70s that has completely left our solar system, the fact that we can still control it, let alone fire up thrusters that haven't been used in 20 years, is 
uh, unbelievable. So, like you said, hats off to everyone who's been involved with that program and that continues to be involved with the Voyager programs and uh, who are studying the data that comes back from it. And even when these spacecraft stop working, the science that's come back from this will still be studied for years and will be indispensable. So I think that is the perfect way to end this episode. And I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Jim Kulka. Thanks, Sawyer and Kat. Good to see you again. I'm 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 so thrilled to have you back here. Uh, we we missed you over here. And um, I also want to give a, a a real good shout out to uh, anybody that's dealing with the uh, uh, the fires that are going on right now in uh, in California. We're th- we're thinking about you. I know there's been some significant damage, and I know one life has been lost as a result. And uh, I just want want to say hang in there, and uh, uh, we wish you all all the best and wish you all well. Exactly. And, uh, again, NASA and NOAA keeping a close eye on that as well with satellite imagery to try and help those firefighters also. But we're thinking of everyone there. And as Gene mentioned, we're so glad to have you back again. Thank you for joining us, Cat Robinson. It was so great to be back. I'm glad that I was able to make it and ready to finish out the last few episodes of 2018 Strong. And 17. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got really excited. I mean, I'm glad you'll still be with us next year already. But... <laughs> I just got excited. I guess I'm just trying to, like, wish my dissertation written. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if it were only that easy. <laughs> but, hey, at least I um, at least I know what I want to write. So that's helpful. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Do you want to redo that? Uh, it's fine, whichever way. Yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep it. It's perfect. <laughs> okay, then. Well, then. Uh, I'd like to thank you, of course, for joining us. Thanks for uh, sticking with us after we took the time to enjoy the uh, Thanksgiving holidays with our families and, uh, in my case, enjoying it with uh, enjoying it down in Texas, both at the Johnson Space Center, and a huge shout-out to everyone over at KWTX, the TV station in Waco, Texas, and uh, Lorna and Jimmy Herring, the parents of Rhett Herring, which, if you recall, we had them on talking about the Rhett Revolution when that launched on CRS-12, was happy to go speaking with them to over 20,000 students in the Central Texas area about our launch experience together, and a huge shout-out to SpaceX, who actually gave them the entire piece of the rocket that went up with their sticker still on it. So, yes! It was... That's sweet. Exactly. Kudos to them on that. It was fantastic. And again, thank you to everyone out in Central Texas and everyone at the Johnson Space Center for that. And thank you, of course, for listening. And we hope you'll join us for one final episode of Season 9 before we have some fantastic other things planned for Season 10. But let's not rush ahead. Hopefully you'll join us next episode. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. (laughs) 